Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. In this episode, we're going to be turning to Pakistan, a country founded in 1947 with the aims of bringing the ideals of its Islamic modernist founders into fruition. Over the course of the next 50 minutes, we're going to be looking, though, at how those Islamic modernist ideals fared in the subsequent rough and tumble of 70 years of Pakistani history. In the late 19th century, Muslims in many different parts of the world tried to find ways of accommodating their religion to the changing developments in the modern world. Scholars tend to describe the ideas that they developed as Islamic modernism, a term that we'll be looking at in a bit more detail in what follows. Today, we're going to be focusing upon the Islamic modernists that emerged in colonial India, and indeed, the group of Islamic modernists who would ultimately spearhead the movement to found a new country, a new Muslim homeland, the country for which they gave the name Pakistan. And we'll be turning to the question of how their ideals of an Islamic modernism, an Islam that was perfectly at home with the modern world, fared in the subsequent decades of Pakistani history not least through the crucial question of what Islam exactly was, and indeed, whose Islam and which Islam the Pakistani state was meant to be protecting, or indeed, in the view of some of the modernists, Islamist competitors, promoting as an Islamic state. Joining me in this conversation is Professor Muhammad Qasim Zaman. Professor Zaman is Robert H. Niehaus 77 Professor of Near Eastern Studies and Religion, at Princeton University, where he's also chair of the Department of Near Eastern Studies. He's the author of many books, but the one in which we'll be focusing today is his book, Islam in Pakistan, A History, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2018. Hello, Qasim. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, today we're going to be talking about the history of Islam in Pakistan. So Pakistan was, was founded in 1947 as, as the world's first modern state for Muslim. And that created a whole series of questions about whether this should be a state for Muslims, indeed a secular state, or indeed an Islamic state. And this, of course, brought in a whole series of questions, and as we'll see in our discussion debates, about what kind of Islam the state was meant to be protecting or indeed promoting. So in the course of our discussion today, we're going to be talking about in particular the idea of Islamic modernism, which was promoted by many of the founders of Pakistan. And, and indeed, as you've discussed in your work, the fate of Islamic modernism in the subsequent history of Pakistan through to the present day. So perhaps the first question I should ask you then is, is what do we mean when we speak of Islamic modernism? The way I understand Islamic modernism is as a 
complex of uh, religious, intellectual, political initiatives uh, that aim at uh, rethinking or reforming particular facets of Islam, of Islamic belief, practice, institutions, and to reform them, to rethink them um, in uh, accordance with, or to make them uh, accord with what are taken to be the imperatives, the conditions of uh, modernity of the modern world. So this, this in a nutshell is what uh, distinguishes uh, the people that I characterize as the Islamic modernists from those uh, who might be characterized as the traditionalists, uh, a term that we will um, refer to uh, perhaps in the course of our discussion today as the ulama, people who are invested in a long-standing, historically articulated Islamic religious tradition with reference to which they find uh, meaning and relevance for any particular facet of their uh, of their religion. And, and by the ulama, the word literally in Arabic means the learned ones, doesn't it? And these are perhaps what we sometimes glossed in English as the clerics, the, the, the class of religious experts, the learned, who would in principle at least have studied Quran, the traditions of Hadith of what the Prophet Muhammad said and did, and indeed the wider set of Islamic sciences, whether legal and Sharia oriented, oriented or indeed a whole wider set of disciplines. And, and, and as, you, as you've explained then, the, the Islamic modernists are not this same class of ulama, at least not necessarily. Perhaps, perhaps you could give us a, a few examples of, of who these leading Islamic modernists were and, and, and what, what in their ideas actually made them modernists, as it were. So Islamic modernism uh, in South Asia, but also elsewhere, is very much a product of uh, conditions of colonial rule. The, uh, the idea that uh, Muslims needed to radically rethink facets of their uh, belief, institutions, practices, in order to be able to uh, not just thrive, but even survive, uh, in uh, conditions where a radical challenge was being posed to their very existence, an existential challenge, so to speak. Uh, the understanding was that traditional, old-fashioned ways of doing things, business as usual, was no longer um, a viable strategy uh, for continuing to exist as, as a community of Muslims or for that matter, even as individual Muslims, that important changes needed to be made uh, in order to um, uh, uh, find uh, conditions of colonial modernity, uh, a hospitable home. So uh, this, this was the challenge. And uh, there was this kind of recognition that the traditionalists, whether they were uh, traditionally oriented Sufis or Muslim mystics or these uh, ulama, the traditionally educated religious scholars associated with the transmission of learning, the pursuit of learning in institutions such as madrasas and related institutions, that they were unequal to the challenge and sometimes refusing or perhaps even incapable of understanding what kind of change needed to be made to Muslim thought and practice in order to be able to survive in these radically changed conditions. Uh, the foremost pioneering figure in the context of South Asia 
is a man named Sayyid Ahmad Khan, whose life really spans uh, much of the 19th century. Uh, he died in 1898 at a, at a ripe old age. He is the person who um, had, a, had a basically traditional kind of an education. Uh, his intellectual formation, his cultural background was actually not very different from uh, the background of the people that I've referred to just now as the ulama, as the traditionally educated religious scholars. What was different was his analysis of what, would, of what was to be done after the onset of British colonial rule in India. Um, and he believed that Muslims needed to uh, make important adjustments to the challenges of colonial rule, including such things. And you know, this was at the, at the foreground in his thinking, learning the English language, uh, beginning to acquaint themselves with uh, Western forms of knowledge, with Western sciences, in order to be able to advance in the colonial economy and in order to be able to compete with uh, the fellow countrymen who were actually making that leap towards a different um, intellectual and educational formation. So, so, so with this analysis, he went on to to found um, uh, the Aligarh College, which today is still in existence at the Aligarh Muslim University. And, and his colleagues would go on and found similar institutions. And, and he made a journey to, to London, hadn't he, to England in, in 1869, I mean, six years before the founding of, of, of that college. And, and in some ways, the, he'd taken his son to a great extent, expense to study in, in England. And of course, by this point, the other people in India that we're talking about, of course, uh, uh, are Hindus who made up the, the majority of the, the population of India. And of course, at this point, this is the, the context, isn't it, in a sense, sociologically as well as educationally. Yes. And yes, yeah, so he founds, as you mentioned, this, uh, his original name, the, the Mohammedan Anglo-Oriental College, which what that signals is, is, a, is a Muslim college with a, an Anglo and an English medium education, at least in substantial part. I think the other important thing that you, you've alluded to in passing, really, is, is with the emergence of modernists, such as Sayyid, Sir, Sayyid, Sir Sayyid Ahmad Khan, as he becomes, is that there is a, an internal, uh, let, let's say, an internal debate, an internal, in a sense, controversies that Sayyid Ahmad Khan develops, because Islamic modernism em, emerges, really, out of a critique of the ulama and a critique of the traditional ways of, of doing things. I don't think we need to dwell on that now, but I think it's important to foreground that, in a sense, that contested uh, origins of Islamic modernism to sort of understand well what goes, what happens with the subsequent history of Islamic modernism through, through later colonial India and, and Pakistan. So perhaps you could take us through, uh, through the subsequent uh, development of, of Islamic modernist thought in late colonial India from perhaps the time of the foundation of of what becomes Aligarh Muslim University in, in 1919, so Sayyid Ahmad Khan School, founded in 1875, through till, um, till the late colonial period. Uh, one of the things to keep in mind about someone like Sayyid Ahmad Khan and his associates is that he was 
not simply an educational entrepreneur, someone who was, you know, uh, engaged uh, and spent a lot of time and energy on, on establishing this uh, college. Um, but he was also a theologian. His, his concern was to rethink um, aspects of Islamic religious thought, Islamic theology, in a way that would be defensible in conditions of the modern world. The, the problem that he soon encountered in the course of his work, and, and other people have written about this, in particular, uh, David Lelywell, the, the foremost scholar of uh, the Aligarh movement, is that um, there was so much suspicion among the traditionalists uh, of his theological ventures that Sayyid Ahmad Khan at some point came to realize that he had to make a choice between his educational enterprise, which was Aligarh College, and his theological experimentation, that he couldn't have it both ways. Uh, that, the, uh, that the price of being able to have a college at all, uh, for which he would be able to garner some degree of Muslim support, apart from the support of the colonial officials, which was also substantial, is that he essentially gave up his uh, effort to rethink Islamic theology. He didn't exactly give it up. He did have colleagues, people like Shibli Nomani, who he encouraged to, to write new histories of Islamic theology, which he did. Uh, Shibli wrote two volumes of that. But essentially, that compromise meant that at Aligarh itself, at the Aligarh College itself, the teaching of Islam would occupy an increasingly small and increasingly um, um, irrelevant kind of a space. With the result that the people, it was, as, you, as you noted, uh, the people who were educated at this college were primarily Muslims. But that education was almost completely anglicized rather than uh, concerned in any serious or significant or substantial way with the study of Islam. So the products of this college then, um, in the 1910s and 20s and 30s, would be people who would be culturally Muslim and often very proud of it and often very uh, emotionally attached to that Islamic identity, but not necessarily, and often in uh, many cases, um, um, you know, not at all, uh, very literate in the Islamic religious tradition. So, so the point here is that within a generation of the founding of Aligarh, uh, the kind of cultural and intellectual and religious depths that someone like Sayyid Ahmad Khan himself had had in the Islamic tradition could not be taken for granted among the graduates of that institution. So, so what we see then is an increasing distance by the 1920s or so, just, just to you know, uh, um, generalize about that, between the ulama tradition, the traditionalist stream, and the tradition of these modernist intellectuals and activists and entrepreneurs. And you've mentioned the Aligarh College and also the Aligarh movement. And that's important, isn't it? Because when we're talking about Islamic modernism and indeed its critics and, and, and competitors as different types of Muslim thought, we were actually recognizing, well, in order for these thinkers like Sir Sayyid or indeed his rivals or opponents to have a wider social impact, 
they need to find some kind of institutional way or some mechanism of reproducing and indeed publicizing and promoting their ideas. So with Sir Sayyid Ahmad, that's his school, and indeed what, what, what historians have called the Aligarh movement of the people associated with that school, the graduates of the, of the school, the college, and then indeed that, that wider uh, movement of modernism that they promote. But as you've, as you've already mentioned, they had their religious credentials or indeed their religious expertise was rather smaller, not least in comparison to the graduates of various traditional or neo-traditional religious institutions of learning, such as the Darul Uloom at Deoband, um, um, which would have been founded in, in 1866. We have another Akbar's chamber about the Deoband movements, so we don't need to dwell too much on that. But there were these other, let's say, kind of movements that were, that were in a sense, trying to reproduce in perhaps in a different way the traditionalist ulama-based Islam that, you, that you've talked about. Well, let's return anyway to, to where we are that you've taken us up to, perhaps the 1920s or, or 30s, the second generation then of the Aligarh uh, movement's modernists. So where in those last, let's say, the last quarter of a century of colonial rule in India between around 1920 and the mid-1940s then, how is Islamic modernism taking shape in, in that last phase of colonial rule in India? Uh, I think it's useful to uh, talk in terms of particular figures and uh, issues when, when thinking about what Islamic modernism looked like, uh, say in the 1930s and the 1940s. Um, a key figure in this regard is the uh, poet and philosopher Muhammad Iqbal, uh, who was not, by the way, a graduate of Aligarh, but of institutions of westernized education in the Punjab. Uh, in in the Cambridge and Heidelberg. As well. Right, and, and later uh, Cambridge and, and Heidelberg, uh, which is where he got his PhD from. Um, and he um, was trained as, uh, as a lawyer, um, uh, but he's most famous um, in South Asia, uh, both as a philosopher uh, and um, as a poet. Uh, and it is, uh, it is worth noting that his poetry exists uh, in both Persian and in Urdu. So it, it, now Iqbal died in 1938, uh, just, just um, uh, less than a decade before the creation of Pakistan. So it's important to recognize that despite the, the divergence between the traditionalist and the modernist stream that I am talking about, someone like Iqbal uh, does uh, represent a very significant confluence of certain aspects of traditional, a traditional culture uh, and of um, uh, modern intellectual formation. So Iqbal's reconstruction of religious thought in Islam is full of references to um, major philosophers and scientists of his generation and uh, from, from, uh, from Europe and, uh, and North America. Uh, but he is also um, deeply learned in, say, the tradition of Islamic ethics, as mediated in particular through Persian Sufism. So, but, but that is not the case with a lot of other contemporaries of Iqbal, notably, for instance, uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who would spearhead the uh, establishment of Pakistan. Um, so Iqbal is a good um, sort of a complex figure, uh, but there are many others who are 
less multidimensional within the ranks of the uh, of the modernists of that era. That's one thing to to keep in mind. So far as uh, some of the distinctive features of Islamic modernism and Iqbal's era are concerned, I think one one that uh, or perhaps two that need to be highlighted is this increasing uh, um, uh, criticism, uh, both on the part of the ulama and of the part of the modernists of the other camp. And that is the case even when someone like Iqbal is deeply learned in facets of the ulama's own tradition. Now, Iqbal is not necessarily you know, a person with a traditional ulama-like education, but as I said, aspects of Islamic ethics, Persian Sufism, Sufism more generally, are at his fingertips. But his attitude towards the ulama, with some exceptions, is one of almost unrelenting um, hostility and derision, uh, and not just criticism. Uh, that comes across most poignantly, perhaps, in a, in a public and acrimonious debate he had uh, just shortly before his death in 1938 with a major Deobandi scholar and leader whose name was Hussein Ahmad Madani. So Madani was, for some decades at that time, the principal of uh, the Deoband Madrasa in the town of Deoband. Madani had suggested, and the statement may have been misquoted uh, in the press, but he had suggested the idea that, uh, that nations are defined by territory. Uh, and that therefore, because Muslims lived in the Indian subcontinent, they were part of an Indian nation. Iqbal understood this to mean that Madani was violating the uh, coherence and the sanctity of the idea of an Islamic worldwide community or ummah. Uh, the two had different understandings of the key terms that they were using. For Madani, uh, the fact that you lived in a particular nation because of the territory where you found yourself had nothing to do with your membership of the worldwide religious community, the ummah. It was just a territorial geographical fact. And he believed that Muslims could be a part of the Indian nation, just as the Hindus or the Sikhs or the Jains or anybody else could be. Uh, for Iqbal, however, uh, a nation uh, was a challenge to the unity of this worldwide Muslim community. And he castigated Madani on those grounds. So what this, what this uh, illustrates, again, it's a, it's a modern example, a dispute over nationalism and so forth. And there was some misunderstanding of what the other side was saying. But what this illustrates, the, the, uh, the ferocity with which this debate was conducted in the press indicates some of the misgivings that one side had of the other. And that kind of um, um, difficulty of fully engaging with the other side would continue to characterize modernist discourses in relation to the ulama in the years following the establishment of Pakistan in 1947. So through the 1920s and 30s then, we're actually finding then perhaps uh, the, the uh, stakes in many ways of the debate around Islamic modernism and indeed its critiques, the stakes are rising. And not least because in um, 1906, going back that early, a new uh, Muslim 
political organization had been founded, of, of which the person you've mentioned, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, will become the leader. And that's the, the All India Muslim League, what will become later known as the Muslim League. And Muslim League then will, will, will ultimately be the, the political vehicle for, for pushing the foundation of, of Pakistan. And, and this is really very much, as, as it were, a, a late colonial concept, really, because the word Pakistan itself is, is only famously invented, isn't it, in, in, 19, 19, in the early 1930s with the, the, an essay by Chowdhury Rahmat Ali, uh, another law student at, at Cambridge in England. And, and as this idea then of actually the, the, a state needs to be created, a separate state for the Muslims indeed to protect them from the, the, the political claims, indeed the political domination of the Hindu majority otherwise, of what would be a united independent India. As that movement, a Pakistan movement gathers pace then, the, um, the uh, Islamic modernists, the, the stakes of their debate and indeed their, their claim to be leading and controlling this movement and what will become a state for Muslims, that the stakes are getting higher. There's also another organization that's been founded in uh, in this later period, isn't it? And, and that's the Jamaat Islami, the Islamic organization, let's translate it like that, founded in 1941 by Abu Allah Maududi, an, an Indian uh, Muslim thinker who will, be, will move to Pakistan and become an influential figure there, driving the idea, and in, in, in many ways, the founder in, of the modern concept of an Islamic state. He later influenced the founding of the Islamic Republic of Iran, won't he, as well. So I wanted to put him into the mix too, because I'm, I imagine you'll be coming back to him uh, in, 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 in that conversation. So how then did the Islamic modernist movement influence the, the emergence then and the early history of this new state for Muslims that will be called then with that neologism, Pakistan? Um, I think a key thing to keep in mind, um, following up on our previous conversation, is that the movement for Pakistan was led by people who were educated in westernized colleges and universities. Uh, this is not a movement led by the traditionally educated religious scholars. And that explains, I think, uh, important things about the evolving relationship between the ulama uh, or the Islamists like Maududi, whom you just mentioned, on the one hand, and the modernist leadership of the movement for Pakistan. So when we say Islamist, we, we mean um, uh, individuals or movements who are committed to a political reading of Islam and particularly a religious state, an Islamic state. Right, right. So, so the distinction uh, in my mind between uh, the Islamists and the ulama is uh, that the ulama too could be politically oriented and often were, but there is a deep commitment to the historical development of the Islamic religious tradition in law, in theology, in Sufism, uh, in exegesis of the Quran and so forth. Uh, the Islamists, on the other hand, uh, often have a background very similar to that of the modernists. Many of them are often products of the same kinds of westernized institutions of learning. The difference is that the Islamists have a highly political project that they pursue, which is the implementation of Islam uh, through the agency of the state. Uh, which the ulama may or may not share. So um, the the movement for Pakistan then was was led by 
college and university educated, otherwise often westernized, but culturally um, 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 Muslim um, leaders. And one of the key grounds of the misgivings that the ulama, many among them, uh, and the Islamists had towards this uh, westernized Muslim leadership was about the kind of state that they were trying to establish. Uh, so many among the ulama, as well as among the Islamists like Mawzudi, uh, were very skeptical that the state that would be established would be anything more than a homeland for Muslims. That for the likes of Mawzudi was not enough. The state, need, if it was to be a properly Islamic state, it needed to be committed to the implementation of Islamic norms, to the implementation of Islamic law or the Sharia. Uh, the, the ulama too. Now, it's worth noting that the Muslim League, the, the, the party, the political party founded in the first decade of the 20th century that would spearhead under Jinnah, uh, the movement for Pakistan, was able to um, find allies among some ulama, but there were nonetheless deep misgivings among the ulama, even among the ulama who had, uh, who had come on board uh, to support the Muslim League, misgivings about the kind of state um, Pakistan would be and what kind of a commitment to Islam and to the, pub and to the public implementation of Islamic norms would be um, uh, on display in that state. In any case, uh, what Jinnah and his associates did in the Muslim League in the 1940s, in the run-up to the, to the establishment of Pakistan and, of course, to the, uh, to the end of colonial rule, was an increasingly effective uh, deploying of religious rhetoric uh, in order precisely to allay the fears and anxieties of the more traditionally oriented people about the kind of state that they were seeking. So Jinnah's um, speeches uh, in the run-up to the establishment of Pakistan are laced with ideas that the Sharia would have its place in Pakistan and that the Muslims needed to be united and that the Quran and the Islamic platform was what needed you know, uh, to unite them and so forth. But I try to argue in my, in my book that what Jinnah meant by the particular Islamic symbols that he was deploying uh, was often quite different from what the ulama meant by sometimes the very same symbol. So for instance, when Jinnah talks about the Sharia, he talks about the Sharia in the sense of the Muslim personal law that had evolved in colonial India, uh, laws relating to such things as marriage and divorce and inheritance, uh, which was still in effect in uh, colonial courts uh, and so forth. What the ulama and Islamists like Maududi meant was the fullness of the Sharia in all its dimensions, whether it's constitutional law or it's criminal law or it's commercial law or, or so forth. Uh, and that kind of uh, uh, um, disjunction would create a good deal of suspicion. So you have then the paradox in the years following the establishment of Pakistan where the modernists who would control the levers of power and still do to this day, uh, would continue to be 
fairly fairly um, um, uh, unhindered in their deploying of Islamic themes and Islamic symbolism and Islamic rhetoric. Uh, but what they meant by that was quite different from what the ulama had in mind. So for instance, um, the, um, the objectives resolution, which was adopted uh, in 1949 by the Constituent Assembly of Pakistan in order to lay down the key principles that would guide the constitution of Pakistan that was then being framed, recognizes that sovereignty over the entire universe belongs to God, belongs to Allah. Now, Maududi, in fact, as I, as I show in my book, was a key figure in articulating the notion of the sovereignty of God. What Maududi meant by the sovereignty of God was the idea that uh, all law essentially had to take the form of the Sharia, that, that the Sharia was going to be the law of the land in any, any uh, sort of legislation that contravened Sharia norms was inherently illegitimate because it was going to be a challenge to this overarching political and legal sovereignty of God. When someone like Liaqat Ali Khan, Pakistan's first prime minister, who was the one who had uh, spearheaded the adoption of the Objectives Resolution in 1949, when he used the term Objectives Resolution, or for that matter, the Ahmadi foreign minister of Pakistan, Zafrullah Khan used the term Objective uh, Sovereignty of God, they essentially meant by it a recognition that Muslims would be free to live their lives in uh, this new state, and that the, the overall policies of the state would be undergirded by Islamic norms, which would be, they believe, good not just for the Muslims of South Asia or Muslims elsewhere, but for humanity at large. As Yaqat Ali Khan said in the speech accompanying the, uh, the adoption of the Objective Resolution, Pakistan was going to be a laboratory of Islam. And the laboratory was meant to rethink Islamic norms in terms of its ethical ideals in a way that would be good for all humanity. So the, so the point here is that key terms, whether it's the Sharia or it's the sovereignty of God, have entirely different resonances for different circles. And those sorts of ambiguities in their use have never been resolved, creating a great deal of recrimination and suspicion among these different camps in Pakistan. So you've described for us how the, 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 the modernist founders of, 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 of Pakistan, who had been leading the, the Pakistan movement and indeed became its first prime ministers and presidents, um, had quite a different um, interpretation of what the key key terms and indeed the kind of key symbols of Islam meant. And indeed, I think it's, it's worth uh, stressing more generally that when we talk about a state uh, that's founded either to protect Muslims or indeed for a, the version of the Islamists to actually actively promote Islam, that brings up again, of course, the key question which, which Pakistan and Pakistanis have been debating with ever since is, is which Islam? Is this, let's say, the modernist Islam of the, of, of the founders? Um, is it, let's say, the, the Sufi devotional Islam of shrines and indeed of, 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 of music? 
uh, at the Sufi shrines of, 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 of Pakistan, of which there are still hundreds, if not thousands? Is it indeed the state-based um, Islamist political Islam, indeed in, even in terms of the uh, of Muslim banking and a sort of Islamic economic vision for Pakistan of the Islamists? Um, or is it indeed a more, let's say, traditional ulama-based Islam of certain other movements? And of course, then there's the question of the, of the Shias. What role do, do the Shi Islam play in this vision or indeed in practice? And the Shias make up something like 15 to 20 percent of the population of Pakistan. And then this other movement, uh, this other form of Islam that you've mentioned then, of the Ahmadiyya movement, originally a messianic movement that had emerged in late colonial India and had uh, many uh, figures who were highly educated and prominent, but came under particular critique and indeed even violent attack in, in Pakistan as time went on. So you've taken us up to the early history of Pakistan. And I'll move us forward a little bit by mentioning then these, these debates about what will be the constitution for this new country end up in, in some ways the, the leading to a, a degree of, 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 uh, of, um, of let's say, uh, deadlock that leads in turn then to uh, the coup d'etat of General Ayub Khan in uh, October 1958. And he rules then uh, as a military dictator till 1969, the first of several military dictatorships in Pakistan. So perhaps if I hand back to you from around 1970, and you can perhaps take us forward then to, to what's happening to Islamic modernism in, in this period of Pakistan's history through the 70s, 80s and onwards to more recent times. Yes, uh, just a quick comment on, uh, on, on your remark first, Niall, on uh, the matter of Bush Islam, one of the, one of the key stumbling blocks uh, in, uh, in thinking about the place that Islam would have uh, in public life has precisely been this question of uh, what Islam are we talking about? Because as you, as you note, uh, there are powerful, robust constituencies uh, with very different understandings. The Sufis are themselves a diverse group, uh, but, uh, but even if one one is not thinking about the internal diversity within them, it's one major block, as, as it were, um, among many others that exist in Pakistan. Uh, there are the ulama that I've mentioned earlier, there are the liberal modernists, uh, and then there are Muslim minorities uh, uh, in Pakistan, whether it's the Shia, um, who are about um, um, uh, 10 to 15 percent of the total Pakistani population, and the Pakistani population is about uh, 90 percent or 95 percent Muslim. And then there are uh, the Ahmadis, another non-Muslim, another Muslim minority in um, in Pakistan, who were declared a non-Muslim uh, minority through a constitutional amendment in 1974. And then there are non-Muslims. Um, there were many more Hindus until the uh, breakup of Pakistan in 1971. But there still are, and sin in particular, and there are Christians and so forth. So, uh, so the question is, well, what does the public implementation of Islam mean for non-Muslims, but also whose interpretation? The ulamas, the Islamists, uh, you know, uh, which particular school among even the Sunnis, whose interpretation would be dominant? And that has been a major issue uh, when it comes to uh, constitutional debates. Um, um, and also uh, to particular religious policies. Um, so for instance, when in 
um, uh, in the late 1970s and in the 80s, General Ziaul Haq, the military dictator who ruled Pakistan from 1977 until his death in 1988, when he tried to, uh, for instance, um, launch a program of Islamization and implemented uh, or sought to implement this requirement that uh, people pay zakat or the Islamic charity and began deducting it from people's bank accounts, there was a major pushback from the Shia who argued that the state was following the legal norms of the dominant Sunni school of law in Pakistan, which was not recognized, obviously, by the Shia. And, and that created uh, much sort of uh, first resentment on the part of the Shia against the state, then on the part of certain militant Sunni groups against the Shia, because the Shia then was seen as somehow um, creating an obstacle on the path of Islamization. So, so the question of which Islam and what, what does that mean in terms of public policy uh, is, is a big one. Now, one of the things that in this very quick sort of um, uh, overview uh, of, of modernism in Pakistan that um, is worth noting is the um, alliance, precisely because of the fractured religious landscape, the alliance between um, uh, the modernist governing elite and modernist intellectuals. I have argued in this, in, in my book, that uh, modernist intellectuals often lack a significant social base in the country. Uh, and see themselves as, uh, as um, not um, having enough of a constituency of their own in relation to or in comparison to the ulama or the Sufis. And that has often led them to make unsavory alliances with otherwise authoritarian regimes. The, uh, the heyday, if you will, of Islamic modernism in Pakistan was the regime that you just mentioned, Niall, of General Ayub Khan, who had come to power through a military coup in 1958 and would stay in power until shortly before the breakup of Pakistan. Um, and uh, the most distinguished modernist intellectual that Pakistan has produced through all of its history, a person named Fazlur Rahman, who would end his career as a professor at the University of Chicago, was a close ally of General Ayub Khan's regime. Now, what that meant, just very quickly, was on the one hand that it allowed people like Fazlur Rahman and the institution that he headed, the Settle Institute of Islamic Research, first in Karachi and then in Islamabad, to pursue policies through the agency of the state that otherwise would not have been possible. The other side of that coin, however, was that political opposition uh, to the regime often carried over to opposition to the kinds of modernist policies, which would otherwise have been perfectly defensible. But it's that political opposition against Ayub Khan and his authoritarianism would translate into opposition to Fazlur Rahman's brand of, of Islam. And Fazlur Rahman proved to be a casualty of that opposition even before the fall of the Ayub Khan regime itself in 1969. That kind of pattern uh, of authoritarianism bolstering, but also in the long run undermining um, the intellectual credibility of Islamic modernism 
has continued in Pakistan in the 1970s and so forth. What you also see, uh, um, just to jump quickly to, um, to the late 70s onwards, is uh, other factors that would enervate uh, Islamic modernism. So uh, someone like Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, for instance, who had come to power in the, in the wake of the breakup of Pakistan in 1971 and would continue in power until 1977 when he was overthrown by the military coup of General Zahul Haq, uh, seemed in many ways, uh, with many of the positions he held, uh, to be well suited to the promotion of a modernist Islam. One of the things that uh, was a trademark of his campaign was what he called Islamic socialism. And this is an idea, whether one is talking about, say, Iqbal or Liaquat Ali Khan or uh, a prominent intellectual in the 1950s named Khalifa Abdul Hakim and so forth, where Islamic socialist ideas, ideas of social justice were very much in the vogue as part of the modernist sort of package. <laughs> Uh, yet, this would be undermined partly because of Bhutto's own, Zulfakar Bhutto's authoritarian uh, inclinations, with the irony that uh, an otherwise socialist regime would actually be responsible for weakening um, trade unions, labor unions in Pakistan in the, 1970s, in the 1970s. Then there was the fact that Bhutto was seen in many circles as having been partly responsible for the breakup of Pakistan. Uh, Bangladesh in 1972. Yes. And that created um, both opposition and weakened his position vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, uh, the religious establishment. And part of the way in which Bhutto tried to respond in order to bolster his Islamic credentials at a time when, by the way, pan-Islam was also on the rise in the, in the Arab world with the, uh, with the sort of injection of petrodollars and, and the oil boom and so forth and uh, related developments was for Bhutto to try to appease the conservative segments in society. And the, and the major concession that he made was in 1974 when he oversaw uh, a constitutional amendment to the then recently drafted third constitution of Pakistan whereby the Ahmadis, this Muslim minority, was officially declared through a constitutional amendment to be a non-Muslim minority. Uh, and that was meant as a major concession to the conservatives, although in the end, it may actually have ended up strengthening and emboldening the conservative camp. That kind of um, uh, strengthening of the conservative traditionalist and Islamic, Islamist camps would continue under Zahul Haq with his um, uh, Islamizing policies in the late 1970s and the 1980s. And that in turn would be fueled by developments of a geostrategic nature, such as the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan and Pakistan's active participation in the, in the Afghan Jihad throughout the 1980s, which in turn would um, contribute also uh, because a great deal of the anti-Soviet effort in Afghanistan was actually being fueled through or channeled through um, uh, religious groups, religious political parties, and madrasas, which, which would mean the sort of coming to the foreground of those groups. And that in turn would further weaken throughout the 1980s under the Awal Haq uh, the, um, the political 
and the intellectual fortunes of Islamic modernism. Well, you've taken us forward in time a great deal, haven't you? And, and in many ways, but you've set up for us in a sense a cycle with this great irony and certainly this, this unintended development, which was the, the alliance and ultimately the, the, the undermining decision of Islamic modernists to, to ally with the, the series of, uh, of military autocrats through Pakistan, which, which takes us in a sense uh, to more recent history with the, the coup and then uh, the reign of General Musharraf from 1999 to 2008. And this was a period, of course, after not only after the, the uh, uh, anti-Soviet jihad in Afghanistan, but of course with the, the rise of the Taliban movement and the post 9-11 movement. And then, as you hinted, in a sense, the spillover or what's often called the, the blowback of the, the jihad in Afghanistan, which the Pakistani state, but also non-state participants were involved in then. And the blowback of that, in a sense, with the foundation in, in December 2007 of the Tehriki Taliban in Pakistan, the Pakistani Taliban movement, which would be an increasingly violent player in the in the types of debates we've talked about. But of course, as the stakes have raised in most of what we've been talking about so far in terms of debates, there was, of course, a, a series of, of attacks, whether against Ahmadiyyas or against Shias, against Sufi shrines, or indeed against all of these players within these debates, which became increasingly contentious. Perhaps then, as we close, you can uh, give us a sense of what is the, the status of Islamic modernism in Pakistan today? I think that over the course of Pakistan's history, um, if the 1950s and the 1960s were the, uh, were the heyday of, of Islamic modernism, uh, there has been uh, a, a continuing decline of, of the modernist intellectual trends in Pakistan. Now, uh, there are uh, a few things that need to be highlighted. One, the modernist governing elite continues still despite the intellectual weakening of modernists, but the governing elite retains its modernist sensibilities and continues to control the levels of power, which, which tells us something about the resilience of these modernist institutions. So whether it's the judiciary or it's, uh, you know, the universities um, or it's the uh, political elite, uh, the dominant understanding of Islam that one finds in Pakistan is an understanding not of the ulama or not of the Islamists and not of the Sufis, but rather of the modernists. Um, at the same time, there is this paradox that while politically Islamic modernism continues to be, to be dominant, uh, and at the same time that um, the modernist governing elite have not cut down on their invocations of Islam, and that continues to this day uh, under Prime Minister Imran Khan as well, um, but that there hasn't been a concomitant uh, investment in uh, the creation of modernist Islamic institutions. So for instance, very little investment in uh, the creation of the kinds of institutions for um, you know, um, scholarship along modernist lines, 
um, that one saw in the 1950s and the 1960s in Pakistan. Very little investment also in the uh, academic study of Islam uh, in public universities. So to the extent that Islam has not, the study of Islam has not been ceded almost entirely to the madrasas, the, uh, the study of Islam as an academic discipline in the universities is a kind of a marginal uh, activity with a very tenuous kind of a place. Uh, very little effort also to build any kind of a social base for, um, um, for the modernist constituency. The result of that is that even as the rivals of the modernists, whether the Islamists or the ulama and others, have continued to grow, uh, the state's own ability to call upon um, Islamic allies in times, in critical moments, is extremely limited. With the, with the sort of paradox that when the state does need uh, someone to make the case, as recently as in this current COVID pandemic, where uh, the government has wanted people to not go to mosques and not become part of big congregational prayers, but essentially had to concede to the opposition of the ulama because they couldn't find anyone, even among people who were putatively their allies, to make a robust case on Islamic terms that in these times of a national global emergency, the best thing for people would be to stay home. Uh, that would be the right ethical and sensible thing to do. But it just illustrates, and there are countless examples of this, where the lack of investment in an alternate site for the study of Islam, alternate to the madrasa, and alternate to the traditionalists, has essentially left the state vulnerable to going back to some of the people who have all along been highly critical of the state's policies on Islam. Mohammed Qasim Zaman, thank you for talking to us in Akbar's chamber. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to, to talk about this with you today. Da 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 da